Jesus. Amen. You need to have your Bibles ready. And by the grace of God, I pray that our, our hearts will be ready as well as we get into this wondrous and this life-giving book this morning. That said, would you please turn in your Bible and find your way to the, to the Gospel of John, which is a first-century text that was written for the eyewitness community of the historical Jesus, documenting their faith in that first century and their hope in the centuries to come, awaiting the future return of Jesus, the Savior, Israel's Messiah, God the Son in the flesh. Now, in my message today, I want to point us to the Savior Jesus as I take you into ancient scripture in order that we might hear our Lord speak to us from this sacred book, giving us real-life transformation, profound intellectual understanding, and deep, active compassion in particular for the season of darkness that surrounds our culture in this hour, in particular for the confusion which forcefully spirals within our culture. If you have been with us in recent Sundays, you know that I have in mind uh, not the spring season or the summer season coming upon us, but the season of violence that we have seen in our nation, which is daily thrust in our face by an unhinged and bipolar media as it fights the media to cast aspersion and blame one another toward their various socio-political agendas and counterparts which big industries are backing them and making a buck along the way on the drama. The media is like a drunken and dysfunctional married couple ripping each other apart as their small and fragile children watch their home unraveling before their eyes, which in time will be on the market. And then their mommy and their daddy will have separate apartments, trading the kids back and forth over respective days as they jockey to convince their children whose fault it is. Our nation is like a broken home, a drunken, dispassionate guardian. And more than this metaphor of dysfunctional adults who can't seem to get along, our home, this nation, is one of abuse and violence as the news, albeit with its agendas, continues to remind us every day, giving us a glimpse into the depth of the darkness that exists. Just a glimpse, mind you. Because after all, not everything makes the news, does it? You see, it's far worse than we know. So two Sundays ago, I began a new sermon series that I entitled Making Sense of Violence. And we have been processing what, what the news has been pushing before us, this dark season we've been processing. And we've been processing the dark season in, in light of, pun intended, in light of the light of Scripture to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, by, by shining the light of God's word on what Christ would have for his church in these times. Two months ago, on April the 12th, 2022, in New York City subway, there was a deranged man who put on a gas mask and threw two smoke grenades and fired a handgun 33 times, killing 10 people and injuring 19 others. Last month, May 14th, 2022, Buffalo, New York, a wicked man clad in body armor opened fire at a supermarket, killing 10 and wounding three others. The next day, May 15th, there was a violent shooting at a church here in California. An evil man entered a church. Six people were shot, one of which died. Ten days later, May 24th, the wicked man armed with a rifle and a handgun wearing body armor opened fire in an elementary school in Texas, murdering 19 students and two teachers in cold blood. This month, June the 1st, an eight-year-old boy riding in a car with his dad to visit South Carolina from New Hampshire was shot and killed by a man randomly firing a gun at passing cars. The bullet hit his father's leg. Another bullet hit his son in the neck, and he died. 
The same day, a man opened fire in a building at the St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, killing four people and injuring numbers of others. A couple of days later, a man stabbed a doctor and two nurses here in Southern California at the Encino Hospital Medical Center. Last week in Chicago, over the weekend, there were scores of shooting and violence. This week, reports of violence, reports of violence, reports of violence, and we're processing. Why does this happen? Why does evil happen? And that, 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 that is our topic, the first point on your outline this morning. Why does evil happen? And we're talking about the why of evil, and we're talking about the what of evil in this sermon series, Making Sense of Violence. And, and this morning, I want to continue building in this sermon series. So if you've missed previous messages, please go online and listen to them. I'll do my best to review and try to make each lesson uh, kind of self-contained, but, but you really want to listen to the whole thing. And I'm offering it in installments this way. So this morning, I want to dig more into the what of evil. And I want to also build further on the why of evil. Mind you, it is not I who is doing the building here. Rather, it is the word of God. I am merely your tour guide this morning to take you into the ancient book. I'm merely your librarian this morning to take you into the books of this sacred library, the Bible. I am merely your personal scholar this morning at your service to unpack the meaning of the text and to pull the theology from it for you. And more personally, I am your friend. I am honored to be your pastor and to shepherd us as a church through such a season, pointing us to the one who holds the seasons in his hands and whose sovereign reign is not caught off guard by the darkness and whose providential plan is unfolding just as he planned which involves the redeeming of a people for himself for such a time as this, for the praise of his glorious name and the witness of his gospel. The divine media that God is broadcasting into the world comes through his church. And you are all newscasters in this drama, who every day the camera is in front of you, and you have a task of giving the news every single day, just as any, any newscaster you see on TV or whoever you follow on YouTube who gives you the breakdown of the news, you, brothers and sisters, are newscasters. And you have a prophetic call in a time such as this to be able to say to those around you what is going on in the news on the authority of God's word. This broadcast that we have been given, this divine media from God involves good news from the heavens to the earth, and it is what we come every Sunday to hear. For it is the power of God unto salvation for the lost. For it is the power and the means of grace in sanctifying us, his people, from our sins and calling us in repentance and, and faith to the one alone who can save and the only one who is worthy of praise. Now, speaking of, of, of the darkness and the violence, many will think that we are foolish to praise. They will see us silly. They will think us naive for saying that God is good in the face of such heinous human evil, which arguably, they would say, couldn't. You know, can't God stop it? Where, where, where was God that Tuesday? These people are dying. Where, where was your God? He, he didn't stop it. And so then this becomes a difficult thing for many people. With the news in our, in our face, with the suffering that's before us, with fingers pointing in various directions, with the temperature rising, with the pain stinging, how are we God's children to make sense of it all? And further, how are we to report the news the true divine news to people around us. Now that brings us to the first subpoint under the topic, the difficulty, the problem of fame. 
The problem of pain has led many people to have a problem with God, or might I say rather, to justify an already problematic pre-existing condition with God, which is then rationalized as reasonable, because after all, if there really is a loving and all-powerful God, then this wouldn't happen. Well, alas, that is the presupposition at play, among several others, feeding the aforementioned spiraling confusion and dysfunctional blame shifting in the darkness of our day. In the darkness and in the confusion, countless folks in our modern age will claim God cannot exist if evil exists. Well, at least not a God who is all-powerful like you Christians believe. At least not a God who is all-loving like you Christians believe. They say God cannot be all-powerful because he doesn't stop evil, nor can he be all-loving or all-good because surely a good and a loving God, if he had the power to do so, he would stop it. You have a God who just sits and, and watches. Aren't you the people whose, whose good book has a good Samaritan or something in it and people walking by and whatever? It sounds to me like your God has walked by that elementary school and done nothing. Well, in previous messages, I have dispelled this false premise, this spurious start. Exposing the evidence, it ignores this spurious start. It ignores reasonable accounts for the compatibility of evil and the existence of a loving and all-powerful and good God. Now, mind you, mind you, mind you, mind you, I'm not talking about any old God. I'm talking about the God of this book, who lovingly and powerfully created humanity in his image and said that it was good. If you were here at the beginning of our worship service, we started with a reading of the creation account in Genesis. We saw him make humanity. We saw him say that it was good. We saw at the close of the creation, what did he say? It was, it was, it was very good. That's what we saw in this book, the God of this book. Now that said, there are many who use and abuse this book to, we might say, repay the favor by creating gods in their own image. Oh, God made us in his image, so they repay the favor by making gods in their own image. You see, to suit their own desires, their own emotions, their own dreams, and, and they, they, they return the favor by making gods who look like them and gods who will suit them. Gods who let them do what they want to do. Gods who will never offend them. Gods who always agree with them. They will take symbols, even from Scripture, and change the meaning of them. We're being bombarded with that this month, aren't we? With the, with the rainbow, right? A, sim, a symbol that stands for something of judgment and, and grace. A, a, a symbol that has a totally drastic meaning. But our culture will take that and say, well, but I want it like this because that's what I want to do and so God has to agree with the way that I want to do it and so we make gods who agree with what we want to do they're figment of our own imagination gods these make-believe gods and related human dreams and human desires and emotions uh, the, we, 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 we then take these in fallen culture we take these and we spin fallen creation accounts and, and, and all of this all of this all of this creating gods in our images, all of this, doing what we want to do, all of this just points us to and takes us to the root of the problem of pain and evil. It is the human heart. You see, there is a problem with the human heart, friends, and the heart of the problem is our topic, the topic of evil. The God who made us in his image is a holy God. And as a holy God, he has a will and he has a way. There, there are things that are good, and there are things that are bad, and he created hu humanity in his image, and, 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 and to walk in this, in this way of the good, and to shun the, 
the way of the bad. And therein we are imaging this holy God by walking in the way of, of his holiness. God created the, the world. He made the world. And just as the world has certain natural laws, we think of the law of gravity, he made the world with moral laws. And all around the world you see these concepts of morality. All around the world you see humans experiencing things like guilt. How do we account for this phenomenon, this existential phenomenon? It is because God has created a world not only with laws of nature, but laws of morality. There is good. There is bad. And God created humans to have a free will, that they might choose the good or the bad. And, and, and as we read the creation account, as we read in the annals of humanity, we see that humans rebelled against God's moral law. They rebelled against God's law. They said, I, I, no, I, you say this, but I want this. Every act of evil is a violation of God's law. We don't blame the laws, do we, in human life? We don't blame laws, say, for example, against drinking and driving when a drunk driver gets behind a wheel and takes another person's life. We don't say it's the law's fault, let alone do we say it's the lawgiver's fault, do we? Oh, no, it is the one who ignores the law. It is the one who defies the law, the one who uses their will for lawlessness rather than for righteousness. The only alternative would be to take away our free will and to turn us into robots who would be programmed to obey. How would you like that if the state did such a thing? You know, they just programmed us to, to drive the speed limit and programmed us to, whatever, go to bed at a certain time and programmed us, you know, and, and just took away your will. What if God created a world not with humans made in his image who are free-willed agents but who are robots? Surely this alternative is rightly undesirable because it takes away the ability actually to live under the law and freely accept the good, not to mention does it take away the ability to walk after the law in righteousness, but it takes away the ability to have a relationship, a relationship of love. If you program a robot to say, I love you, there is nothing meaningful in it. If you, if you program Alexa or Siri or whatever you use to, 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 you know, to, to tell you every morning, I love you, you're the best, you, you are some sort of weird narcissist if you, if you get tickles off of that. There's nothing meaningful in that. It is not free. And with this in mind, God did not create a world of robots, of automatons who are programmed to love and to live for him. No, he made creatures, and, and, and he made them with free will. And sadly, we creatures freely use the gift of our free will to walk in lawlessness. And that ushered in darkness to the creation when we rejected his law, and we rejected the love of the lawgiver. So, yes, there is an all-loving and all-powerful God, but yes, there is evil, because God, in his love, gave us the freedom to choose to receive his love. Humanity squandered that choice, and as a result of human freedom, we are actually no longer free. We're not free. And now that's the grand illusion. Our mother and father were free. Their children are no longer free. We are bound. We are shackled. We are enslaved to sin. Just try. Try to go a day without sin. You let me know how that goes. Pastor Matt, I did it. You're a liar. You did it. You're proving my point. It's within us. It's not out there. It's in here. 
And, that, and, 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 and what's in here, what's in here is, is the root of the problem. This is, this is why there is evil in the world. This is why there are, are, are men who take weapons and kill innocent kids. This is, this, is, this is the why. We are shackled. We are bound. There's a wickedness that is deep within the human heart. And the human heart is unable to free itself any more than a person covered in mud can cleanse themselves. You need someone else with a hose to wash you down. You need someone else to cleanse you. You're covered in dirt. You can't operate on your own heart. You need a surgeon. You need something external to you. I ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Would you find your way to the third chapter? Here we see a man who comes to Jesus. And he wants to know about salvation. They spoke of salvation and, and being rescued from this condition of the heart as having entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus is asked about what, what one must do in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And look at the text in John chapter 3 and draw your eyes at verse 5. Jesus has told him in verse 3 that you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, after the guy presses back, this guy Nicodemus presses back on him like, oh, what do you mean? Jesus explains further. Look at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. The stuff that we're seeing in the world and the media and the rest, these are all symptoms of that problem. What must we do to be rescued from it? You must be born again. The heart that you were given in your biological birth has a problem with it. You need a new spiritual heart to replace that heart of stone. Oh, how, 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 how do I get it? Hey, you know how the wind blows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just blows, right? Yeah. There's nothing you do to get it. It is the gift of God is the point. The wind does what the wind does. So too God does what he does. You must humble yourselves before the God who is. Not the figment of your own imagination gods. Again, there are gods who humans want, and there are gods who, who, who we dream up, but there is the God who is, and he is not the same as those. You must humble yourself before the God who is. The holy and triune God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, who created the world that we've rebelled against. And we must come to him and we must confess that. And that confession, that confession, that, 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 that coming to him, Jesus is explaining, is a work of the Spirit. The God is Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit who is giving you a new heart that draws you in repentance and faith. That work of the Spirit is a gift of love. It is a gift that displays his love. Draw your eyes at the text. Find your way to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Oh, you Christians, you're so judgmental. You think you're it's the only way. What about all these other ways? Oh, you're so judgmental. No, no, no. This is about judgment. I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at you. We all have this problem. 
We all have this problem. It's like being in a support group for whatever. You know, and everyone in the support group has that problem. So it, when you're talking about the problem, everyone in the room has this problem. I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying, you, you, no, 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 we all have this problem. It's not a matter of me judging you. This is, a, this is, this is all of us. And the text is telling us that, that he didn't come to point the finger at us. We already, we already know this. You know in your hearts that you've, you've messed things up. You know in your hearts that you need a redeemer. That, that, that's not what he's come to do to wag his finger at you. He has come to save you. In this manner, God loved the world. He sent the Son to die for you. This is what he has done. Part of understanding what he has done, you need to understand who he is. So turn the page from John 3, turn to the left, find your way to John chapter 1. Who is this son who has died for us? He is one with the Father and the Spirit. He's the one God who is. As I said, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the one God who is. Read the text, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here, the, the, the word, as a synonym, a title for the historical Jesus of Nazareth. He is tied to the creator of the universe. He is with God and is God, for he's one with the Father, one with the Spirit, so he's with God, and he is God, for they, the three, are the one God who eternally exists. And he has stepped into human history. He has come into the darkness. In the introduction here, I've talked about our darkness, our dysfunction, our confusion, our violence, and this problem of evil. But here's the thing about the problem of evil. Friends, listen. You can't have a problem of evil to deny the existence of God because there is no evil if there is no God. The problem can't even get started. Follow me. To, to, to differentiate between good and bad, you have to have a standard that differentiates between good and bad. If you want to know if something is two inches or eight inches, you need a ruler that can measure and tell you which is which. So too, if you want to know if something's good or bad, you need a ruler that tells you, oh, that's good and that's bad. That, that, that's an objective standard by which you know. If there is no, if there is no lawgiver, there's no way to substantiate which is which. In some cultures, polygamy is acceptable. In some cultures, it's not acceptable. In some cultures, cannibalism exists. They eat people. And it's not bad to them to eat people. They eat people. They eat people. Now, I don't know about you, but I objectively think that's wrong. I think it's wrong to eat people. I objectively think that's wrong, and I suspect you do too. Now, if I were to say in that culture, well, you know what, guys, I, I mean, you know, I'm just here for the holiday or whatever. Uh, who am I to judge? Uh, you know, the menu comes around. It's like a human burger. I'll, you know, I'll take the chicken burger. You've got to try the human. It tastes just like chicken. I'm cool. Uh, I think that's wrong. And if the waiter at the cannibalist restaurant said to me, well, who are you to judge? You're just supposing, imposing your North American culture on me. You know what? I'd say, well, maybe I am imposing my North American culture on you, but it happens to be the case that my North American culture corresponds to objective reality, and objectively, we shouldn't eat people. 
Now, I'm not talking about you're stuck in, you're about to die on an island and your friend has already died and you're like, ah, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legitimately like harvesting humans and killing them for human burgers. That's what I'm talking about. That's objectively wrong. It's objectively wrong. I, you know, if there was a culture that, uh, I don't know, tortured senior citizens for entertainment purposes. They had a TV show torturing senior citizens. And everyone watches it, and it's so great. Did you see what they did to that old guy last night? You know, I go, look, this is wrong. This is objectively wrong. You can't say, you can't have an objective category of wrong unless you have an objective lawgiver that stands over all cultures to differentiate those things. And I think we all know intuitively there is such a thing as good and evil. And there are some cultures that maybe get some goods a little more than others, and all cultures get some things wrong. I mean, you know, for, for, for the North American guy to be critiquing the cannibalist restaurant when we slaughter babies in the womb is quite hypocritical of our culture, which ought to be obvious to us. I think we can objectively say on good ground it, it's wrong to kill babies inside of wombs. It's wrong. It's objectively wrong. And, and, and anyone who offers any argument uh, against that has just lost their moral compass on it. It's, just, it's not me imposing my standards or anything like that. Any more than if I said 2 plus 2 is 4, mm, you're imposing your culture on me. Your mathematical culture, no, just try it. Every time you put two pairs together, you get four. So, you know, stuff it. That's just the way it is. That's objective reality. Now, back to the problem of evil. The person who says, there is no God. You know, why isn't there a God? Because there's evil in the world. You can't have evil unless you have God. So you can't even get started with your objection. You're assuming the existence of God to raise an objection to prove the, the non-existence of God. You can't get started. It's like saying, I can't speak a word of English. Ah, uh, you just did. Uh, you, you contradicted yourself. You have to have God. And I would submit to you, you can't just have any old God. You can't have any old God, but you have to have the God who solves the problem of evil. Sure, any old God might get you an objective criterion of a good and a bad, but not any old God is going to solve the problem of evil. There is only one God. And that one God is the God who solves the problem. The problem, we've all sinned against him. How do we solve the problem? The one God who exists took the problem upon himself and died in the place of sinners. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And his son, the eternal son, who is God, became a son of man. You see, son of God, we hear son and we think created. No, the son of God is uncreated. Uh, the father, the son, they're... The son wasn't created by the father. He eternally exists with the father. It, 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 he eternally exists. Now, sons on earth are procreated by fathers or whatever. We're, we're images of the eternal son who isn't procreated. He, he forever exists with his father. You see, if no humans ever existed, there would still be a father and son in heaven. We, we, we are images of him in that regard. The son has always existed with him, but now the son of the father becomes a son of man. Look at verse 14, John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He becomes a man so that he can die as a man in our place. Keep reading verse 14. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So there's one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. He creates a world. The world rejects his love and his law, becomes a mess. And the one God who is, the Father sends the Son 
to become a son of man to enter into that story. Fully God, fully man. Verse 14. The one in verse 14 is the creator of the world. The Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis says, when the author steps on stage, the play is over. The author has come on stage. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him, and he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There again, what we saw in John 3, you must be born again. Not of your own will, not of your flesh, not of your doing, but of his. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and the answer to the problem is the eternal and gracious God, who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, and that Father who sent his Son to come and become a Son of Man and to suffer in our place. You can't have good and bad unless you have God, and you can't be rescued from your bad unless you have this God. So here we see God dealing with the problem of evil head on. He doesn't send a third party. He comes himself. He comes not merely as God, but as man. He comes as man because humanity made a mess. We started the problem. We are responsible. It is our debt to pay. And this compounds the problem, for you see, we are bankrupt. We can't pay the debt. So what is the solution? The innocent and holy man, Jesus, pays for it. He paid a debt that he himself did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And as a man, he makes the payment in his life, his suffering, and his death. And as God, he receives the payment. And further, as God, he cancels out the debt of his people. And he conquers death by raising the dead body of Jesus to life. The curse of the fall has been lifted in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the first piece of the new creation that has come to replace and restore the old creation that has fallen. That said, the surrounding creation that we are in is still desperately in need of redemption. And violence is just a case in point. We are in need of redemption, not just humanity, but the earth itself is in need of redemption. The earth itself, the plant kingdom is in need of redemption. The animal kingdom is in need of redemption. It is all subject to disease and to death and to corruption. And this brings us to this week's building on this topic of violence. I want to talk about so-called mother nature as we continue building on the problem of evil. Because uh, when we bring up the problem of evil, it's not just crazy dudes shooting guns in schools. But there's also, you know, other things that come up when we think about the problem of evil. We think about disasters. We talk about Mother Nature, tongue-in-cheek. Certainly there are folks, though, who worship nature. But tongue-in-cheek, Mother Nature. I've entitled the message today, Mother Nature versus Father God. Note the question mark there, because there is no competition. There's absolutely no co competition. Now, like moral evil, natural disasters do not overpower God or catch God off guard. Nevertheless, natural evil from Mother Nature this is a topic that raises the question yet again, where, where is God in all of this? Where is God when volcanoes are killing people and droughts are starving people and earthquakes are, you know, toppling people? You know, where, where is God in all this, huh? If your God is good, okay, you've answered the problem with the shooters and whatever, Pastor Matt, but where was God, Hurricane Katrina? Where was your God then? And that's a question that fallen humanity has always struggled with. We wonder about the town that is devastated by a natural act of an earthquake or famine or infectious disease. We wonder why there's cancer, cancer, that destroys and kills those we love. We, we wonder why that happens in our bodies. We wonder why there's deformity. Like, why was a child 
born abled body and, and, and this child was born disabled. Why, God? Why? That said, turn from John chapter 1 to John chapter 9. Let me show you that nothing is new under the sun. John chapter 9. Notice the way, by the way, that I'm using the scripture this morning. We're not expositing, moving verse by verse. I'm taking the passages with carefulness to their original context, pulling the theological meaning out to string it together so that we can understand this problem of evil. And here I've taken you to a passage where the problem of natural evil is raised. Verse 1, chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? See, they're wrestling with it. Why, why did this happen? Did his parents do something? You know, why, why does he have this natural condition, this deformity? And Jesus answered, verse 3, It was neither the man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as the day it is. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now notice the light of the world language. We saw that in John chapter 1. What is Jesus getting at here in this kind of esoteric response? He's saying, don't confuse the doctor with the disease. Don't confuse the physician with the condition. The condition is a part of the fall. When sin entered the world, it not only messed up your heart and your soul and your spirit, but it messed up everything. Relationships, societies, nature. In the Bible we read, at the fall of humanity, Adam, Eve, what happens to them? They're judged, right? But what else was judged? Look at this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Nature is messed up. When humanity sinned, it not only messed them up, it messed nature up. So then there is a relationship to human violence and natural violence. So, okay, Pastor Matt, you answered the gun thing, whatever. What about nature? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship here. We need to be ready to explain this. We live in a state, I mean, California is no stranger to wildfires, floods, landslides, mudslides, earthquakes, droughts, storms, uh, and more. God has placed us here to be his, his witness. These things are going to happen. Will we be ready to respond in these times with theological accuracy? Further, more personally, you and I are not immune from experiences of doubt and confusion, especially when calamity strikes. In fact, in the history of God's people, natural disasters have rocked the faith of many men and women. In John 9, you know, you've got these godly disciples, and, you know, they're there, they're wondering, and people are wondering. I'm going to take you to a book inside of the Scripture where it's wondered so profoundly. It is the book of Job. Would you turn from John and find your way into the book of Job as we continue our study? Many scholars believe that Job is the oldest book of the Bible. It is a narrative of a man named Job, who is a, a man of great faith, who loses everything. And natural disasters are a part of taking it, and his body is riddled with natural diseases. He's surrounded by friends who, frankly, could have used this sermon series because they give really bad advice. Uh, they, uh, they, they simply don't understand the problem of evil. That said, as a pastor, it is my responsibility to to make sure that that is not the case with us. I will give an account before God for the things that I teach you. And I, I, I stand before God in front of God's people saying this. I want to prepare you, church, to answer the questions. The, the questions that are around us. And to know your Bible. And to know how to respond when people attack God. And, and to be reminded that you would be there too attacking God had it not been for the grace of the Spirit and giving you new birth. That you walk in compassion towards the darkness. 
and that you walk in accuracy. We saw that Jesus was full of grace and truth in John and that you would reflect him in, in this duty that we have, which is the next point on your outline, the duty to understand suffering and faith. Understanding violence is critical to the Christian life. One of my duties as your pastor is to preach and to pray in such a way that I've prepared your hearts and your minds in faith for suffering. One of my jobs is to disciple you in the Father's word and to pray before the Father that you, brother, that you, sister, would not curse God in the day of your calamity because it's coming. Even more, that instead of cursing, we might worship God and bless God as our Father, no matter how intense the grief or the deep pain that we encounter in this world. Listen, virtually everyone in this room has and will experience bitter calamity. Bitter calamity. You can, you can mark it down. It's coming. It certainly is going to come. And let me tell you this. When it comes, it's going to feel absurd and meaningless and undeserved. You're going to go through those emotions. It's going to be unexpected. Most of our grief and our pain in this life comes out of nowhere, and it baffles our senses of justice, especially when we are not developed in the Word of God. And that's why the book of Job is so relevant. It deals with the unexpected calamity that we ourselves will experience in this life, and it calls for faith in a sovereign God and a good God. This book, Job, will help build our theosity that we've been covering in this sermon series. Second point on the outline, theosity. Uh, recall from previous studies what a theosity is. Theos is the word for God. Dike is a part of a, a Greek uh, 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 various words, uh, word group of DK, which means to justify. How do we justify God in light of the existence of evil? Okay, so I've exposed the fallacy of the so-called problem of evil as it relates to, you know, human violence, and we've talked about free will, and God didn't make us robots, and we used our will to do evil, and you can't blame God for that or whatever. But with regard to natural evil or natural disaster, it seems intuitively obvious to us that this is a little bit different. There's a difference between a murder spree and a tsunami and yet both result in people dying, right? There, there, there's a difference between a hiker who's walking, say, on the edge of a cliff like this, and a gust of wind blows, and by hiker, you know, they find him weeks later or whatever. There's a difference between that and a hiker who's walking with his buddy, and his buddy's like, you know, and, and the garment finds him later. He's like, I don't know, he went off for a walk or something, you know, right? There's a difference between your buddy pushing you off a cliff and you dying, sorry for all these morbid illustrations this morning, and, uh, and a gust of wind blowing you. Right? We, 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 we say one was, you know, a, you know, an accident of nature. Right? And the other was intentional. Right? We don't, we don't try to sue the wind or take the wind to criminal court. 911, uh, yeah, there's this cloud and you've got to go get it. Go now. You know, like, we, we understand there's, there's, there's something different here. So let's meet the character Job. We've got to move fast. Going to move fast in the text as we meet this historical character. There was a man, verse 1, in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and he was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. The way the book starts is profound. It's intended to, to really catch you because you're meeting a guy who is not a likely candidate for suffering because he's a good man. He's a good man. And we're going to be taught a profound lesson in this. People ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? You might say that's a good question. And in a sense, it is a good question. But there's a problem with the question. It is assuming something that is not true. Why do bad things happen to good people? I've never seen bad things happen to good people in my life. I don't know about you. I haven't. 
problem with the question is there are no good people according to the standard of the scripture. For we all fall short of the law of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. There are no good people. But Job, he's upright. He's righteous. Yes, yes, yes. That's a part of the lesson to drive it home. Verses 2 and 3 describe the way that God had blessed him in his righteousness. He has seven sons. Look at it. Three daughters, huge numbers of sheep, camels, oxen, employees. Look at the text, verses five, 4 and 5. I won't read them. We've got to move fast. There's a specific instance of Job's fear of God and his uprightness toward his children. Look at the text. Every time his sons and daughters gathered for a feast, Job would get up early the next morning and he would offer burnt offerings for each one of them just in case they had sinned. Wow. Just in case. And then calamity came. Skip down to verse 13. It was one of those feast days when all, the ten of his children were gathered in the home of their oldest brother. Look at verse 14 to 15. A messenger comes to Job and says, Some violent men, so this is human violence, uh, stole his livestock and killed his employees. Okay, we've already talked about how to answer human violence. They use their free will to do that. That's on them. That's not on the Creator. Verse 16, another messenger comes. Look at it. And a fire comes uh, that has fallen and has destroyed his sheep and killed some of his employees. And then verse 17, another messenger comes. Some dudes have raided the camel and the herd and killed others of his employees. And then in verse 18 and 19, another messenger comes and says that all of his children were crushed to death when a tornado struck the house. So some of these calamities are by evil men. We've addressed how to address that in terms of, of free will and the problem of the human heart, whatever. But some of them are caused by what insurance adjusters would call acts of God, or so-called Mother Nature. The, the fire that is mentioned here in verse 16 is probably lightning. It's lightning. And what, what's going on there? Think about, think about lightning. I was reading that lightning is by far the most destructive of nature's violent acts. The annual number of fatalities from lightning is well over 100. More casualties than any other of natural disasters. Each year, lightning destroys property worth over $100 million in the United States, mostly from fires in homes and forests. It is estimated that any one year throughout the world, there are 16 million thunderstorms, 1,800 taking place at any given moment. Scientists have estimated that throughout the Earth there are 360,000 lightning flashes per hour that occur. Now with this in mind, it is worth pausing to, to point out something as it relates to the what of evil, the quiddity of evil. Is lightning immoral? Look at that lightning, it's bad. No, lightning is not, are you with me? I mean, you know, ooh, that's wicked, that's wicked light bolts right there. No, it, it's, it, there's, it's not evil. We say it's evil when, like, it strikes a dude and he dies, or at home, or whatever. Like, in the case of Job, we go, oh, man, where was God? But when lightning rips through the sky, you're not like, where's God? You, if anything, you're kind of like, whoa, God's big. Likewise, a volcano. You see a volcano erupting or whatever, you're not like, that's, that's a bad volcano. Somebody needs to arrest that volcano. Uh, the eruption of volcanoes is it's not moral or anything like that. In fact, the volcanoes have formed beautiful islands and... And, and, and bodies of, you know, lakes that are filled up with water and stuff. But then they can erupt and destroy a village of people, and then we're going to go, well, that's bad. But the thing is, the physical or the natural disasters themselves are not good or bad. Good or bad are just the moral categories that we, we, we put on these specific uh, acts of nature. Volcanoes aren't free-willing, sentient beings who are like, oh, there's a bunch of people down at the bottom. I'm about to get them. Boo-boosh. <laughs> you know, volcanoes aren't free-willing. They're not, you know, sinister. Nonetheless, we still wonder, don't we? We ascribe a certain moral value to it. And, it, and this must bring us back to the creation 
And we've looked at the creation account. We, we began our service with the reading of it. And, and things were in harmony. It was paradise. Fish are swimming. Birds are singing. And missing from the, the diseases, uh, from the scene is disease and drowning and death and natural disasters. Adam and Eve lived in an idyllic environment. They were with their creator who walked in the cool of the garden, we read. There's tranquility. There's peace. And then when they rebel, as we saw already, cursed is the ground because of you. We read in the book of Romans, this next point on your outline, in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, it declares the entire creation was subjected to enslavement. The creation, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, it's, it's all enslaved as a, as a part of the fall. So we inhabit a once perfect earth, and now it is flawed. And because of Adam's sin, earthquakes produce tsunamis, which, which produce devastation. Now we have natural disasters. Uh, hence, we don't, those who are students of the Bible, we don't blame God for natural disasters. There would be no disasters in the world if humanity didn't rebel against him. Things go back to us. We want to dodge the blame and point it at God. When God created our world, it operated under natural laws that he established at the time of creation. There were natural laws at force in the Garden of Eden. So, for example, if Adam jumped off a cliff in hopes of landing in a pool of water below him, he was not disappointed. The law of gravity made sure that he, you know, splashed into that pool of water. If Eve wandered into a path of galloping horses, she had to jump out of the way since two objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. We know that scientifically. The same laws that govern gravity, matter, and motion, and similar phenomenon govern weather patterns and water movement. But before the fall and the flood in Genesis, there were no disasters because God's uh, creation of laws in nature are in force, but not the laws of sin corrupting them. God's world was a world of order. Natural laws that God created were for our good. Natural laws that allow them to make fires and cook fish or whatever are the same laws that allow us uh, to do evil and wickedness with them. But we don't blame God. Those are a result of the free will acts of humans. Unlike moral laws, God's natural laws cannot be broken. They are also non-selective. Everyone must obey them or suffer the consequences. Write this passage down, Luke 13. Jesus told the story of 18 men who died at the Tower of Siloam when it collapsed. Did these men perish because of personal acts of sin? No. They were no worse sinners than those who didn't perish. They died because a natural law was in force. They fell because of a, of, of a natural law. They died, though, because of sin's curse. We don't want to hear it, but the truth is, is that death is what we deserve. And on this note, it gets us back to the narrative of Job. All of Job's life was gone in one afternoon. The, the way that the story is set up, the sharing of, of Job's righteousness, it serves to make this point, right? We, even the best among us, this happens. Because there are no good people, as I said. You see, the law of God presumes obedience, and all of us have broken it. So we can't appeal to instances where we've done good things to somehow make us good. I'll grant that there are nice people, but there's a difference between being nice and being morally, ontologically good. Now, the bottom line is that death is fair. And by any means, nature or whatever, death is fair. And when death comes to you, you must worship God in the face of your death because death is what you have coming fairly to you. Salvation, salvation is the scandal. That is what is not fair, that he would save us, that he would rescue us. Now, in the same way that as we've studied the problem of evil in terms of human behavior, now talking about it in terms of natural uh, phenomenon, when we studied human behavior, I was careful to point out to you 
that it's not just human behavior, but there is also a spiritual battle that is at play. The devil is literally in the details we saw. I took you into Ezekiel. I referenced Isaiah. We looked at the serpent in Genesis. And we saw how there are forces of evil that are at work in the world that are a part of this evil. And I shared that with you very intentionally because as I see reports in the news trying to make sense out of things, it's, it's our laws, it's our education, it's the politicians, it's the, it's the, you know, no one ever talks about the pink elephant in the room, the red dragon in the room, rather, the devil. Look at verses 6 through 12. The same is true for natural phenomenon. In verse 7 of Job, there we see Satan. He's roaming the earth. In verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. Satan's not impressed. In verse 9, what does Satan do? He insinuates that Job is not such a great specimen of reverence for God. He says there's only one reason that Job is, is fearing God. And so Satan says in verse 11, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face, God. God could have said, I don't have to prove anything to you. You've already been cursed. How's that going? Roaming the earth on your belly? How, how do you like that, huh? But in this case, God chooses to get an open victory for Satan to have this in Revelation to teach and to instruct us in righteousness. Look at verse 12. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand. And so calamities come. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that Satan is the prince of the air. We see in scriptures that Satan has the power to mimic natural, uh, to mimic miracles by manipulating natural phenomenon. The, the, the devil can use nature. You need to be aware of that. He can manipulate wind. He can manipulate disaster. He has the power... He has the power to mess with these things. Verse 20, we, we, we see the devil doing this, and then in verse 20, Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped God, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be his name. The devil uses his powers, the prince of the air. He loses everything Job does, and Job responds in worship. I think of the great George Mueller of Bristol, England, on Lord's Day, February 6, 1870, his wife died of rheumatic fever. They had been married 39 years and four months. The Lord gave him strength, George Mueller, to preach her memorial service. I cannot imagine. And he said this, and I quote, I miss her in numberless ways, and I shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow and I am satisfied with the will of my Heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I continually kiss the hand that has thus afflicted me. Now, I began this sermon by, 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 by trying to corral us around us, get us to see this. And I shared with you the, the, the burden that I have, the goal of, uh, as a pastor of, and a father and a husband, is that what I, want, what I want for my family and for you is that in the face of death and suffering and loss, that the Lord would give us his grace to worship unwavering like this. That we've been rescued from this. Now, musing on this, I found myself uh, studying this week a theologian, Gerald Bray, and uh, rather than trying to rephrase it in my own words, I'm just going to give you an extended quote, so for, forgive it, and then I'll come to the conclusion and we'll land the plane. But listen to Dr. Bray. He says, Physical disasters are neither good nor evil in a moral sense, because morality is ultimately spiritual and not physical. But physical misfortunes serve to remind us in spiritual terms that we are all guilty in the sight of God. 
and deserving of punishment we see meted out to some. If we are next in line, then so be it. We deserve what we shall get every bit as much as those who have already gotten it. Would these disasters and difficulties occur if mankind had not sinned against God? That we don't know. We like to think that a sinless world would not suffer natural calamities, but if something like congenital blindness is not the result of sin, how do we know that it would not have occurred without the fall? What can we say is that because of the fall, we have no right to be here on earth at all. And so when disaster strikes, we cannot protest our innocence and blame God for what has happened. The human condition is a serious one. But the fault lies with us, not with the world that we live in. It's certainly not with God. No one is exempt from this. And when we see how badly things go, we are meant to take it as a warning of what is coming our way if we do not repent and turn to God for forgiveness. As Christians, we have been saved from our sins, but we have not been excused from the consequence of being children of Adam and Eve in this life. As the Apostle Paul put it, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That was our second point from Romans. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, we groan inwardly and we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Deliverance is at hand. But the final triumph must wait until the end of time and the consummation of all things when he will wipe away every tear. And when death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. But that raises the question, until that day, how shall we live? And you have some takeaways there on your outline to consider. Now you might say, when I, I came to church, I, I thought I was going to be inspired. I thought I was going to be uplifted. This is my first time to church in a while. This was a Debbie Downer. You, uh, you just, dead disasters, our hearts are wicked. We're all going to die and we deserve it. Listen, listen, friend. It is my job to prepare you for the world that is, more importantly, for the God who is. If you had a disease that was, that was going to take your life and you went to see the doctor and the doctor just gave you a sucker and how you doing and, oh, that's great and, I'll see you in six months, and didn't tell you you were dying, what would you think of that, doctor? I mean, you might leave feeling good and got a little sucker, some sugar in your system, you know. But is that a good doctor? Is that a good physician? No. Likewise, a, a pastor who has a room full of people who come to worship God, who doesn't tell them, you're, you're a sinner, you have a disease, you are going to die, and, and, and a pastor who stops just there is also a derelict because you have to say, but there's an antidote. And the antidote is free. It is free. It costs you nothing, but it costs him everything. And if you come to him, you will be forgiven. And you have the promise of life and life today even. And he'll invite you to, to be a part of his work in this age, which is the first point of stewardship. We must, as a result of the things that we are learning, be better stewards. Before the fall of humanity, God called humanity to be stewards of the earth. And one of the things that we need to realize about natural disasters is that a lot of them are actually not just the result of the fall of Adam and Eve, but they're our result too. You ever hear people say, where is God in Ethiopia? What about all the starving babies in Ethiopia? Doesn't God hear all the screams of the baby? The babies in Ethiopia dying. Where is God? Where is God there? How can you blame God for starving babies when the earth produces enough food right now for everyone on earth to have 3,000 calories a day? That's more than enough. There's, there's enough energy, food, clothes, and world resources. Good stewardship shares and cares. 
as well, good stewardship shuns gluttony. And in our case, I've seen stats that show that North America, with like 8% of the world's population, consumes over 40% of the world's goods. And meanwhile, we have atheist gluttons in North America. Where's God? You know, where's God? I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's great. The thing is, people starve because we do not care properly for creation, for one another, for the earth. My father-in-law runs a nonprofit building water wells in Africa. He goes to villages where people have been dying of dysentery for generations and bores a well and gives water to people. God has instructed us to do such works as these. And along with the material stewardship of the resources of the earth that can mitigate some of these things, we also have the spiritual stewardship of duking it out with the devil and forcing him back where he is on the attack. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 tells us, but against rulers, against forces, against darkness, against wickedness. Take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist the evil day. Stand firm. We are in a spiritual battle. I so desperately worry that the church in this country has forgotten the stewardship that we have of spiritual warfare. We've gotten so busy in politics and divides and this and that and this cause and this team and this whatever. We have forgotten the mandate that has been given to us to go into the world, to be a light on a hill that shines. Further, we need to, second point of application as I close here, remember the sovereignty of God and to trust God. Job is an example of trusting God. He loses everything. There's not time to do, do all of it, but, but even in the passage you see his wife turns on him. He, he loses everything. He loses all of his relationships in this. He says to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Worthy is the Lord God of Job, brothers and sisters. Learn from your, 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 your brother, your servant Job in the text of Scripture, how he trusted God. If you know the book, towards the end of the book, he begins to, he begins to waver. And, and therein you, you, you find some, hey, I, I do that too. And we're reminded that we need Jesus, who is unwavering, who never doubts, who, who, who never doubts, who lived the life that we did not live and perfectly gives himself for us. And that brings us to the final point on our outline, salvation. We must run to him in faith. We need a savior. His name is Jesus. You can cry out to him and be forgiven today. You don't have to wait a moment longer. You can in your heart right now say, I need you. Forgive me. Forgive me. I will follow you. I believe in you. I heard you died for me. I want that. And it's yours for the taking. We come now to celebrate communion. There's a little cup. It has some juice in it. It's a piece of, of, of bread. The bread reminds us that the eternal son took on flesh. The bread is a symbol of his body. A body that was broken. A symbol of violence. The cross, a symbol of violence. Blood being poured out. That, 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 that's violence. We read in Colossians chapter 1, at the beginning of service, we read it, in fact, that proclaims that Jesus Christ holds all of nature together. This crazy world with natural violence, this crazy world with human violence, he is sovereign over it all. And he stepped into the creation. The author of the play has stepped on the stage. And we come now to worship him, to sing to him, to have communion, to celebrate what he has done for us, and to celebrate the victory of the cross. Mother nature has no victory. Human violence has no victory. The king is coming, and it will all come to an end. Will you be found in him on that day? Come to him. Come to him, and let us worship him. Father, we thank you for your word.
We thank you for the table that is before us, a table that reminds us of the debt that we owed. We deserve to hang on the tree. We deserve to bleed out and die. And yet he came and did that in our place. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The light stepped into the darkness. Winds blew around him. Natural disasters happened around him. Sinners attacked him. He was no stranger to natural violence and human violence. As he died, in fact, there was a dark storm. He was mocked. And he did that for us. And he did that according to the divine will. So, Father, we thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming for us. We thank the Spirit for opening our eyes to see him. We thank the Spirit here today for drawing us in repentance and faith. We are not like Job. We are certainly not like Jesus. We need you desperately now to sanctify us and forgive us. Do so. Move. As we come to the table now, we pray. As we come now and sing, have your way with us. In Christ's name, amen.